0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is Game Designer and Writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include The Ulfbert Swords. The Women and Control Horror Cycle. Spending your Dracula Points. And Isaac Bickerstaff. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti.
1: Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze
0: again? I think I heard muffled laughter. or Was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door.
1: Of course it's locked. Just our luck.
0: Hold your skeletal horse's ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book.
1: How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist?
0: Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost, and Lord Slogar is missing sound familiar? Whoa, that's
1: eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with
0: that? Patience, can. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you, and just, and voila, look, the password. And the door, it's unlocked. Now let's go party like it's 1899. Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way, it's mine. But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, and the beautiful Lux 21st century decor tell us that we're once more in the gaming hut. And uh, this time around, our miniatures have very shiny, beautiful swords, and I'm afraid they're using them to menace poor Peter Frampton because uh, beloved Patreon backer Stephen Dosman poses us the following. Whilst their Viking contemporaries may have been making swords using bog iron fired with bone coal, a delightful concept in its own right, these swords, and he provides us a link to some schmancy swords, which we'll discuss in detail, were something different. They may have used iron smuggled from the Middle East, been created for high-ranking Christians, inspired a host of contemporary fakes and knockoffs, and yet been the uber swords of their day. What inspiration can I take from the Ulfbert swords for just about any RPG setting with swords? Uh, So, Ken, you have delved a bit more into the lore of these fancy name-brand swords.
1: Yeah, they're called Ulfbert because they have the word Ulfbert, usually between two crosses, or every now and again between two crosses with a T-cross, so they're Ulfbert and Ulfbert T, and I, you know, we can speculate as to what that meant, but it's not just one guy's name, because... The swords have been dated from the 9th century, so mid to late 800s, to the middle of the
0: 11th century. And Well, they could be one guy's name in the way that Louis Vuitton is one
1: Right, guy, yeah, but they're not the name of the sword maker, yeah. Bing. That's not what it is. Yes, but it could very well be Louis Vuitton-type name or Coco Chanel's name. And they probably, because Ulfbert is a specific Frankish name that, shows up in a specific area of the Frankish Empire, namely the Austrasia and the Rhineland, they probably, people guess, originated there. You can't, you know, carbon-14 date or type a sword. So this this is based on workmanship, and it's based on the name carved into the blade. They're longer and thinner than regular Viking swords, which is more evidence that they were probably made by a Frankish swordsmith. They have a rounded tip, a shallow groove in the blade. They are basically what you get if you start with a Viking sword and you say, I want to make a medieval knightly sword. This is the sort of road you're taking is to start with the Ulfbert sword design. It's a transitional sword. Exactly. A one-handed sword, not a two-handed sword. And What makes them special when they are special is that they're made with crucible steel, which is a much better kind of steel with a higher percentage of carbon in it. And the carbon is worked into the blade. So it's similar to, it's like the next step after the original Damascus steel, which was made from iron that originated in India using the Wootz process, which is the most fun word in the history of metallurgy. You can stop looking now. And the, uh, the Wootz steel makes its way into Damascus steel. And then a, either a better Wootz or the next level of Wootz becomes the kind of steel that they make the Ulfbert swords out of, and this is why people guess that the steel itself, you know, no other steel, as Stephen Dosman points out, like that is in Viking times, so it must have come from Persia, or maybe even India, or uh, the Khanats of Central Asia.
0: And, and, and the timing works out perfectly for the opening of the Volga trade route, uh, which is basically this giant trade route that goes all the way from Russia and connects Northern Europe down to the Middle East. So often people will say, I don't know how this, this was possibly made with the supplies that people would have on hand. And historians have a habit of forgetting again and again that whenever trade is possible, trade will be occurring. And often trade routes are quite large and extensive. And so it wasn't a weird or remarkable thing for this steel to come from Persia or India to the Rhineland.
1: Right. And three of the Wolfbert swords have been found amongst the Volga Bulgars, who are the people at the far end of that trade route. So it's plausible on that level. I would ask the question if they're importing this steel up a Viking controlled trade route. Why does it make its way to Frankland to be made into swords to then be smuggled back into Viking country? Because, of course, it's illegal under Frankish law to sell swords to the guys who are literally descending on your coasts and slaughtering you all the time.
0: Yeah, it's good old-fashioned arms control. (laughs)
1: Exactly. So, my other plausible possibility is that it opens with the rise of the Salmonids in Persia, who, because they have beef with their neighbors, are happy to sell their steel on to people who will stab them, and closes when the Salmonids are conquered by the Seljuks. And if that's the case, it could have come through any port in Syria, which would make more sense as to why it's winding up in Frankland as opposed to in some other part of Europe. Because one assumes that if you're a Viking swordsmith, you're not selling the superior steel on and not keeping any of it for yourself, but that does seem to be what happened. You see very few of these crucible steel swords made in the Viking pattern, and that's part of what makes Wolf Barret special. And we should also note that we are dealing with a sort of looking for your car keys under the lamppost situation because... The Vikings did not necessarily have more Wolfbearet swords per capita than the next one. No, guy. they just
0: very politely buried them all in graves. Yes. <laughs> leaving us to dig them up later. So it's not like the the Vikings were necessarily a big market for it. It's just the ones that we have we happen to have recovered from Scandinavia.
1: Right. And, and that's where the majority of the swords do turn up is in Scandinavian and Scandinavian influenced burial areas. The sort of twist on that is that not all the swords that turn up with the word Wolfbert carved into them are actually good steel. That there is a thriving market apparently in Wolfbert forgeries.
0: They're knockoffs, just like right? Louis Vuitton.
1: Like, just like Louis Vuitton. And only about a quarter of them seem to be made with the superior steel. And some are made with a core of regular steel and then they've put little blades of the good steel on to sort of fake it a little more. Some are just solid core, regular uh, bog iron swords that will snap embarrassingly in battle, perhaps. So we've already got, as far as I'm concerned, as much inspiration as you need, because we've got illegal arms smuggling. We've got a forgery. If these are Vikings that are forging it, they're pagan Vikings who are carefully forging the cross into it to make sure that it's got Christian magic. So that's fun. And then you've got some, you know, Persian authority that's uh, been selling steel as a sideline that then gets overthrown either by the Seljuks or, well, they probably get overthrown by the Seljuks regardless, because whether they're going north or west, they're they're not leaving Persia anymore post-Seljuk invasion.
0: Right. So let's start finding the, uh, the many available products from this story. So first of all, I guess there's a temptation to have a, Rule system that's so granular that it recognizes (laughs) the additional value of this sword. And I guess if you have a rule system that does take weapon breakage into account, RuneQuest does, but RuneQuest doesn't have steel; it, it only goes <laughs> up to bronze. So you could give the the sword uh, more hit points, but as I've already suggested, I think that's too much of a pain.
1: I mean, this could also just be the explanation for plus one swords or it could a different be a plus type one of plus sword, one. or
0: yeah, or, or a non magic. It could be a non magical plus one sword that could actually be sort of useful, right? Yeah, that you can have a an extra good sword that doesn't. Register as magic and will let you go into certain places or something so Mm -hmm. i guess you could have a plot hook where you have to go and buy this rare sword that is better but not magical in order to go into an area that doesn't allow you to take magic weapons with you seems like a lot of work for plus one
1: and unless you've got a dwarf with you you're not going to be able to tell if it's the good steel or not because you can't cast detect magic on it to determine is this plus one you just have to take the guy's word for it and that's good fun, too, right? That's a fun plot hook.
0: Right. What I think is a little more promising in terms of a plot hook is the fact that the raw materials, the, the steel, are making their way a long distance. And uh, in your world, that might be from you know, the equivalent distance of uh, Persia or India to, uh, to the Rhineland. But that caravan or that riverboat needs guards. So you could be guarding steel you could, on the other hand, discover that there's a fabulous treasure coming up the river and prepare your ambush for it and then discover that that treasure is very, very heavy because it's steel. That seems like a bit of a a ripoff, though, and it, that's an example of kind of hosing your players with history that I do not necessarily endorse.
1: The um, other possibility is that we have these swords, often if not primarily used by pagans, with crosses carefully incised into them. And in a world without chemistry, the reason steel is going to be superior, especially if it's made by foreigners, is they're going to have bound their genies or demons into it. And that's, you know, why the steel is better is it's got a demon in it. And so the cross is carved in there to control the demon. And the T is authority. It's not a cross T. And it's if you're a, a Viking and you're like, I'm going to belt and suspenders this. I know the christian christ is good at controlling demons but thor is better so i'm gonna add a t to it and so maybe that's what you've got is that this great steel which is great steel and does give you a plus one and is not a necessarily a a magical steel it's it's a demon steel it's got a demon in it and that's going to be a problem if you uh, melt it down and maybe that's why the guy is trying to collect these Ulfbert swords because what he wants is a bunch of demons that are already bound so that he can command them with magic. And that's why the bad guy is collecting all of these swords, including the sword from your grandfather's grave. How dare he?
0: Also, the idea of the swords being contraband I think is fun that you could your uh, mission could just be you are trying to smuggle some swords into some place that isn't supposed to have them. Or if your sympathies lie with those people not having swords, which I think, again, is more in the heroic tradition, you are trying to pursue and head off and capture a sale of uh, swords to the enemy nation. Right. And we could, you know, literally stick with super cool, hard swords, or you could, you know, extrapolate that into magic items. That could be any sort of common Thing, or could be, you know, you're attempting to uh, prevent the smuggling of material components for a spell. So there's all sorts of things that in an F20 world would be contraband if people could prevent them from being smuggled. And, of course, being a smuggler or being the people who are chasing the smugglers, that's, that's full of adventure opportunity.
1: And uh, you can also extrapolate it from an F-20 world, you can use these just as basic treasure in a modern-day setting. They can be capable of beheading a werewolf where other swords are not because they have the superior steel in them or because they were you know, uh, ensorcelled with Kazakh magic for anti-werewolf dealings. You know, the Turks have always historically had a problem with werewolves, so they've got really good sword-making methodology to, to stop that from happening. And so that's why you have to find them. They're double-bladed, which is historically how you killed a werewolf back in medieval times. So maybe a genuine wolf sword is good against werewolves and nothing else is. And if you're fighting werewolves in 2023 instead of 923, then finding a genuine wolf bear is maybe a, a bit of an ask, and so you have to set up museum robberies and whatnot.
0: I also like the whole idea that these are a brand name and they're prestigious, prestigious mm-hmm. enough that other people fake them. So first of all, you could have the makers of the real swords hire the party to track down the fakers who are raising money for some other nefarious deed and turn out to have you know centipede person guards and stuff. So there could be something more going on to that, but also just the fact that. Maybe you just get a sword that is a prestigious brand name sword. And what it provides you is a social bonus that just like people, you know, wear Rolexes now, that all of the important uh, people, all the, the leader types, you have to have an Ulfbrecht sword to really, uh, you know, succeed at this party. So you might get like a charisma bonus or some sort of bonus to your social role when dealing with big deal upper crest types. Or it could be a clue and a mystery that here's this scuzzy-looking uh, thief prowling around, but he's got an Ulfbert, so that means that either he's just stolen it, uh, but he would have sold it already, right? So, is this perhaps the prince in disguise?
1: Yeah, what's going on with that? And then there's this courtier who just happens to have the best sword in the fight, and he's not very good at fighting, but he does have the best sword, so you've got sort of a weird Elric and Stormbringer thing going on, where you know, it's the sword that's doing all the all the really cool fighting because it's, you know, it's a brand name. It's it's just better. And that might inspire, if he's an NPC, it might inspire PCs to redistribute good swords to good swordsmen. Or if they're a PC, it might be a fun explanation for why your character, despite being a, a bard or, or something else, is still a pretty good in battle because you've got an Ulfbert, not just some wax sword, and you got it because your dad is rich and bought it for you. And maybe you're annoying about it. Maybe you're just cool about it. Right.
0: And if you're annoying about it, someone who knows how to use the sword might take it from you. They might indeed. Well, on that note, it's time for us to uh, see what other hut or segment awaits us on the other side of this exciting commercial. Palgren Press invites you to a reality shattered masked ball with three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game Black Star Magic A guide to supernatural powers
1: in the four realms haunted by the king in yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret. Sarah Saltiel's tale of Belle Epoque terror. A casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And
0: Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home reality television also out now legions
1: of carcosa
0: the bestiary for the yellow king from alien parasites to warped human conspirators from hungry buildings to incarnations of drought from gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt
1: in wolf-like packs legions of carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify
0: haunt and menace your investigators fresh from the skull mashed minds of john r harness kira magrin Sam Saltial, and Monica Valentinelli
1: with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, fifth
0: imperative. Follow the technician previously seen in The Missing and the Lost as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking
1: off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's
0: one of those again.
1: All three available
0: now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and fifth imperative.
1: Available at royally superior local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The horror of the projector, or in this case, the non-horror of the digital screening device, but the smell of popcorn remains the same, except it's not genuine butter, really. But the seats are vastly more comfortable, and that's the important thing in the cinema hut. as we move to the center seat, center section, to talk about a trend in the latest cycle of horror movies, which, Robin, you define as women and control, and I'm going to ask you to sort of unpack that a little bit, because you know, that's to, you know, just putting it bluntly like that, that's the final girl. And that goes back even before uh St. John of Carpenter gave us Halloween, right?
0: Yeah. So certainly horror movies with women protagonists are, are not uh, new at all, but we are seeing a huge uptick now in films uh, with a female protagonist. And particularly the horror, the metaphorical level of the horror is about issues pertinent to women. And often the character's turn out to be, in some way, control freaks or men are trying to exert control over them. And what we're seeing, I think, essentially springs from a little bit from the Babadook, because the Babadook, if it came out now, would absolutely fall into this category and be part of the cycle, but even more so from Hereditary by Ari Aster, which takes a rather typical horror situation, but filters it all through a character played with incredible force and sympathy by Tony Collette. And I think, first of all, issues pertaining to women were in the zeitgeist after Me Too, and we see a a Me Too theme coming in through a lot of these things. We also see a theme of motherhood in both of these original Vector films, and this will be repeated again and again as we look at other things on the list. And I think that when a cycle of films occurs, you have two causes for that. You have sort of a, a social or zeitgeist effect, Uh, But also, there is a production effect uh, that it just happens that a movie comes along and demonstrates a formula or platform that other people want to follow. And I think what people did with Hereditary is they said, look, here's a horror film with a real amazingly great actress turning in an incredible performance, and female actors have a real uh, difficulty finding roles this meaty, and uh, here's an opportunity for them to do genre work and feature as the leads in film, which again is still rare, and uh, really over-deliver based on the budget of the film. So these films also really depend on great performances, and there are a lot more female actors looking for characters to play with this level of depth to them, and that is a business model made in movie heaven or hell, I guess, since we're talking about horror.
1: And again, we're taking the general role of horror in the film community as a place, first of all, to experiment, not so much with film technique, although that also happens, but with story possibilities. And it's because the investment is so low. Most of these films that we're going to talk about were probably made for, you know, high single or low double digit budgets. And because, as you say, female actors are generally underpriced by the market, and so you can get a, you know, by and large, better performance for less money by casting a female star. So there's a lot of structural inducements to make this kind of movie once something like Hereditary makes a quarter of a billion dollars demonstrating that this story can actually work with the teenage boys who are the primary driver of who goes to see horror films. But it turns out teenage boys, friends and girlfriends often want to see this kind of movie. So there we are.
0: Right. And also these films tend to have very small casts in general because they're character driven, they're kind of chamber pieces and they're psychological horror. They're about a personal transformation. So again, you hire a great actor to be the lead. And then probably, you know, one or two main supporting people will see this again and again in the list. They have uh, small casts and it makes them more affordable and they have lots of bang for the buck. So to list, and this isn't a complete list because I know there are others that I haven't seen. Just over the past few years, we've had She Will, uh, directed by Charlotte Colbert. It features Alice Crege as a... A very protective actress who's going to what she thinks is a solitary retreat in the Scottish woods after cancer surgery to recover. And then she finds out that it's actually infested with new age goofs. Uh, And it turns out that the forest all around her is uh, coated in the ash of the witches who were burned earlier. And uh, she achieves a transformation based on that. Then there's Resurrection, which I think is one of my favorite films on this list and has Rebecca Hall. And this ticks all of the boxes. She plays a very controlling uh, mother who is uh, increasingly freaking out because her uh, increasingly independent daughter wants to head off to university and she's trying to maintain control at work. And this terrible figure from her past begins to, I won't even say show up again, but perhaps just manifest. And that figure is played by uh, Tim Roth. And so uh, this has all of the motifs in it. And when you hear Rebecca Hall in the lead role, you know it's going to be incredible and intense. And uh, that is, is sort of an exemplar of that. And can you also point it out that Barbarian should go on this list? Yeah,
1: Barbarian fits this pattern. And I don't believe it's a super spoiler to say that the monster's name in the credits is Mother. So throw that onto the, the mix. But it's very much the whole first act of the movie. Georgina Campbell plays a young woman who shows up on Airbnb. There is a mix-up. There is a guy already in the Airbnb, and it's literally everything a single woman worries about happening happens in this first act. I just don't want to spoiler it anymore, but it is absolutely centered, just riveted to social unease and the extra threats that young women face in the uh, world, certainly in Detroit of today. And Justin Long is, of course, the misogynist goof who is the sort of anti-hero of the movie so there's a a lot of sort of relatively straightforward gender politics that plays out but it plays out against this canvas of incredibly weird and unsettling you know female consciousness versus male piggery i guess i can say without spoiling everything
0: from the same year megan is a most obviously a frankenstein film but it's also a film about a uh, woman with uh, control issues and control issues that uh, work because of the way that she's being treated and how ambitious she is. And suddenly, motherhood is thrust upon her in the form of an orphaned niece. She's a protective mother figure, but also the creature, the, the robot Megan, is a protective, controlling mother figure. So it's the battle of the protective, controlling mothers in uh, that one. Also, Alex Garland's Men is very explicitly about Me Too and about uh, reacting to the emotional violence of men. In this case, Jessie Buckley plays a woman who, after a catastrophic event involving her troubled husband, goes to the country for a retreat. So you're going from seeking control by heading into a folk horror environment, and she starts to run into all of these weird dudes in this uh, country area around this house. And all of them, in this case, are played by Rory Kinnear in a very unnerving way. And uh, the Final act sure escalates into body horror and the uh, the breakdown of control, and we find out who really has the control issues.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want to spoiler men necessarily, or Babadook, but their endings rhyme. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Pearl is another female-centered, this is sort of an origin story for the Mia Goths murderous character in X. That's not really a spoiler. <laughs> That's in the marketing. But it's very much Mia Goth is in 1918, and she's in a oppressive household dictated to by her oppressive mother. And at some point in Pearl, she snaps. And so we have sort of a the play out of that dynamic that sets up a more conventional, straightforward slasher film. But it roots it in this sort of female-driven motherhood versus professional career versus you know, don't murder everybody morality that it's tied up in in this whole question. A Wounded Fawn, a, a movie that I don't know if anyone saw, but it's very interesting and very much fits this model. 2022, Travis Stevens, the thing that makes it even more interesting than Sarah Lynn's great performance as The woman who goes on a very ill-advised date to a second location is that her date, played by Josh Rubin, collects a statue of the of the Furies, and that turns out to be part of what happens in the movie. And so we have explicitly female enforcers of social order showing up as the monster in a wounded fawn, and that alone, I think, should put it on the list. And it's also, it does a lot of things. I talked about. Horror films sometimes experimenting with the actual uh, cinematography and, and camera work and moving towards experimental film. A Wounded Fawn definitely does that. And then finally, I'll say Smile, which as a female protagonist and a unembodied demon, but it's an unembodied demon that basically symbolizes or instantiates the social pressure to smile all the time and that turns out to come from a horrible place of guess what maternal trauma that uh, Sosie Bacon's character suffers, and Kyle Gallner is the ineffectual and problematic boyfriend that one needs in these uh, female-driven stories. Because no one in the audience says, "Why don't you get Kyle Gallner to do it?" They say, "Oh my god!"
0: <laughs> yes, the, the ineffective, dismissive boyfriend is a staple of horror and has been for for decades and decades. Right, and now we get you know the modern version of that guy. And so this pattern, I think, has now become so strong that it's even being applied to horror franchises, as in the case of Evil Dead Rise uh, from this year, directed by Lee Cronin. Mirabai Peetz plays a longtime rock and roll sound engineer who uh, returns from the road. She is uh, pregnant, and she goes back to her sister and her sister's family in this building that is almost completely abandoned because it's going to be redeveloped. There's only a few people still living there, and the Deadites... Uh, show up because someone plays the wrong record. I don't think this totally works actually, because the more in-depth, nuanced characterization uh, doesn't really fit the Evil Dead universe ethos. Nor does the reason why the Deadite eruption happens have anything to do with the main theme. But I think it is an interesting illustration of just how omnipresent this basic setup is. And again, it's super about Motherhood, and then about trying to keep it together before it turns into an Evil Dead movie in a building. Also from this year, No One Will Save You, directed by Brian Duffield. This has Caitlin Deaver as a young woman who uh, her issue is less control than isolation. She lives in a small town, and she's she's an Etsy maker, and has a reason why the people all around her sort of keep her at arm's length. But still, it's about an introverted a person who needs to come out of her shell and has this uh, trauma to deal with. And you could easily see this as the setup for a sensitive drama, uh, but people wouldn't see that these days. So instead aliens show up (laughs) and it does a great job of a making the sort of gray aliens uh, super scary and weird and continuing to generate cool horror obstacles with them before winding up in a, a conclusion that wraps up not only the uh, the genre chase invasion stuff, but also the character arc for the, that character. So I think it's another a great example of, of this cycle. And then finally, uh, another one I'll mention is uh, from Mexico. It's called... Husara, the bone woman and it features natalia Sol- Solion as a woman who had sort of a wild past now she's trying to settle down and again it's about motherhood she's pregnant she has troubles with her family she reconnects with her uh, lesbian lover a bit and trying to decide what to do with it but at the same time she is experiencing horrible apparitions of these weird twisted female creatures who very obviously represent the enormous change in violence that pregnancy does to a body. Mm. And this, I think, very explicitly recalls one of the films that I'll point to as sort of the, the older source wellsprings for this whole uh, cycle of stuff. And that is Polanski's uh, Repulsion from 1965, which for those who don't know, uh, features Catherine Deneuve as a woman in an apartment. In London, who the oh, her whole world is turning against her as she begins to lose her uh, grip on reality and is her apartment infested with demons? Is she having a mental breakdown? That is really the template for a lot of these films. And also, even earlier, very much a film with a character arc, a strong female character, and issues of control is uh, Cat People from 1942 by Jacques Tenor, which of course is a lycanthropy movie and there's no better monster to uh, deal with issues of uh, internalized rage and control and the the fear that you're going to, uh, to lose control or that you're again, losing your grip on your perceptions, which is another thing that radiates through all the films that we just talked about, because uh, like all the Luton films, there's the, is it happening or isn't it happening question?
1: Yeah. The, um, this whole trend is, I mean, you can see similarities and you can see that you can make final girl movies using this template. So it's not an, are we doing Halloween or are we doing repulsion? You know, as uh, movies like hereditary or barbarian show, you can do both. You can have that flooding back and forth throughout the film. And that of course is the other thing that makes horror such a productive genre is because that freedom to experiment is baked, not into just the cheapness with which you can make a horror film, but with the fact that horror audiences by and large are the best audiences in film because They'll watch most things. And so, if you put it up on screen and it's scary, great. They don't interrogate it or prejudge it or pick it or this or that and the other thing. There is a substantial body of people that just likes being scared. And if right. you can do that, you can do anything else you want with the film and they don't get mad at you usually.
0: Well, they will downgrade yeah. <laughs> some of these films on IMDb. Right. So, for, for example, <laughs> Resurrection, which I think is brilliant, has a scandalously low IMDb number because... It's a weird, disturbing, psychological horror and not a shocking gore fest. Right. And so I think there are horror fans who will downgrade things that don't scare them. And some of these are more in the vein of sort of weird tales than things that you find, uh, you know, the, you find them psychically disturbing rather than viscerally disturbing. Tales of the uncanny. Yeah. But that said a genre is basically where drama is fleeing now (laughs) and some of these films are quite fascinating uh dramas and character studies and uh so that's a another cycle that is uh, played out and is playing out uh, subsequent to our doing the uh, horror essential series and i guess ken we'll see how long this continues and uh, what comes after
1: and how many of these turn out to be essential
0: and on that note let's uh, head to another segment the best of Askfigeln is now available at drive RPG. All issues of Phoenix magazine since 2013. That's spelled
1: F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English.
1: You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix.
0: And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Like fancy swords, podcasts don't grow on trees. So support this one by joining such beloved Patreon backers as John W.S. Marvin, John Bisco, Chris McLaren, Adam Grotyon,
0: and Lee Candelino. It's time once more to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, beloved Patreon backer Manfred Gabriel has a question mostly for Ken, and uh, I guess I will pop in and try and find ways to sort of broaden this out because it's a little specific, but... It speaks to, uh, Ken, some of your uh, most acclaimed uh, products, and uh, uh, Manfred's going to start a game. I'm about to start a Night's Black Agents Dracula dossier campaign. Stakes Mode, Damned Vampire, of course, and I'm picking one of the options in Double Tap, but won't tell here just in case. And so, Ken, before I continue with the question, for those unfamiliar uh, with those things, can you quickly explain all of them?
1: Yeah. Stakes mode is one of the four basic modes you can play Knights Black Agents in. It's the sort of higher action characters acting for noble reasons for high stakes. It's sort of like the better James Bond ones are stakes mode. And so that's the sort of assumption he's going into, which is very true to the original Dracula, obviously damned vampire means a vampire gets their powers from the devil or hell or Satan or demons, not from just a sort of folkloric vampireness or from super science or from aliens. And uh double tap is the expansion book for nice black agents, giving many more options for players and directors alike.
0: Right. And Dracula dossier, of course, is the, the Dracula dossier. expanded campaign that provides you with uh, added version of of uh, Stoker's Dracula to find clues in and uh, pitch you against, guess who, Dracula. Mm. And so that brings Manfred to his question. But Dracula will have lots of aberrance in excess of 50 points with hand-to-hand and health over 30. How do you play a monster with such stats? How do you spend your pool points? And we can expand this to playing any creatures in Gumshoe with tons of points and also expand it even further to any big boss monster where you as the GM have the option to uh, ease up or press harder uh, depending on uh, what's happening in the fight. So Ken, uh, what are your opening suggestions?
1: My opening suggestion is that the immense amounts of aberrance are there so that you can spend huge amounts of his powers and do cool Dracula things without worrying, oh, do I have the budget to turn into a bat? Yes, you do. You're Dracula. Just do it. The high combat and health are to ensure that Dracula will survive any encounter that the players have not very, very meticulously planned, put it on their home ground, figured out all the options, developed a a a Bane, a super killer. They have to work to beat Dracula, because otherwise, Dracula can beat them, and will. And that is what that's there to do, is in a combat, identify what Dracula actually wants, that may be to test the characters and see what kind of foes he's got. It may be he just wants to collect a thing and escape. Or it may be he wants to murder half the party to scare the other half into worshiping him or doing his bidding. Or he may just be hungry and want to eat all of them. And once you've decided that, he should be able to do that. And I would spend those points implacably. So if Dracula's coming after you, why not spend... Five points on that first hand-to-hand so that he can basically snap someone's neck and drink the gushing blood. You know, do called shots, do neck snaps, do the whole thing, and make it clear that if you, you know, come at Dracula, you'd best not miss. You'd better have a plan. And I would say crippling a character in the first strike is kind of the sweet spot because... Killing one in the first rank is a little drastic, but if it's the second time they've faced Dracula, yeah, he probably knows that they're player characters and therefore somehow more dangerous than regular burn spies. And so, yeah, he's going to bring it. And if they did not bring it in response, then that should be a very educational encounter and they should be the ones trying to steal something and get away instead of Dracula.
0: And that's what you do with any big boss adversary who exists for more than one fight. Right, You may have like the F-20 thing where, okay, we're fighting the dragon at the end. You can even do something like that in Gumshoe. But the point here is to build up the creature without necessarily, you know, it might, as you suggest, exact a heavy toll the first time they meet them. And you really want it, you know, the first few things it does are super hard and scary. And then after that, uh, maybe it eases up a little for whatever reason. The thing that you want to do, though, is make sure that if you have a creature that can very easily execute a total party kill at any time, there is the saying, you know, the monsters are smart, the monsters know their capability, they know what they're doing, but also as a GM, the monsters work for you. (laughs) And you need to justify it so that it doesn't seem like just blatantly GM putting the thumb on the scale, but you should justify why they don't TPK the party right away and go on with what they're doing. And the answer frequently is until the player characters annoy the monster enough, whether it's Dracula or something else, Dracula has other stuff to do.
1: Yeah, he's got a conspiracy to run.
0: Yeah, they're going to have to, you know, work a while to even get on Dracula's radar as yet another bunch of people that he has to kill, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I I met Van Helsing, I killed Van Helsing, you're no Van Helsing, right? So Mm -hmm. have him always want to be doing something else, have a distraction, have another goal, and only if the players escalate to the point where he has no other choice but to go after them because he's smart and because they're only regular humans he's not going to reorient his whole plan into just coming after them he's going to send ghouls he's going to send you know just hired assassins he's going to he's as we already pointed out he has stuff to do part of your planning in order to really really plan to take him out is to make sure that he continues to underestimate you until you put the hammer down
1: and that you are ideally carving away at all the people he has to do things you've taken out his ghouls you've taken out his hitmen you've killed a bride maybe and so he doesn't have a vampire that he can send after you and he does have to go and he's going to be in a bad mood and that hopefully gives you the opening as opposed to gives you a total party kill but at no point should dracula be a predictable win for the player characters and if you're in a position where you look at the numbers and it looks like a predictable win. This is a secret just for Manfred, add more points to Dracula. He's Dracula. He should. They should know they've been in a fight, even if it's the one that they absolutely planned out to the last millimeter. It should still be, oh, but it's Dracula.
0: Right, because they probably went and refreshed their points. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a second question. How do I integrate the Zolojny Quartet into my Dracula dossier campaign? Can quickly, the Zolojny Quartet is...
1: The Zelogyny Quartet is a linked campaign of four scenarios, Fortnite's Black Agents. It can be played in any order, and it centers around the Philby plot against Saudi Arabia, and it involves vampirism, and I don't want to spoil anything, but it's very cool.
0: Right. So, uh, Manfred asks, Lisky Brava are easy to fit into the conspiracy. How do I build connectors? I'm thinking to replace the Philby plot with something of the dossier. How would I do that?
1: The Lisky bratva real fast, are the Russian uh, Mafia Bratva, the Brotherhood, that are the bad guys, the sort of surface-level bad guys in Zolojny Quartet, and obviously Dracula can run a Russian Mafia as easily as he can run a Romanian Mafia. It's not a problem to use them, or you can just change them to Romanians, which also would work. And I should say at this point that in the Edom file scenario book there is a little three-page chapter called the Zolojny Crossover that should help Anyone, uh, do exactly this integration job, and not to answer a question with a plug, but that would be a good way to do it. Uh, The simplest way is just put the dossier into the Swiss bank. In the Boxman scenario, you're robbing a Swiss bank. Make the dossier the thing you're robbing instead of Kim Philby's passbook. You can replace the Philby plot with the earthquake machine from the Dracula dossier, or magical rights protecting the Kremlin, which explains why Kim Philby is messed up in it. And in Dracula Dossier, there's an optional capstone in which Dracula wants to vampirize Putin and take over Russia. So there's a magic protection woven into the walls of the Kremlin. Dracula needs the key to that to get through and uh, eat Putin correctly. And so that's what he's looking for. You you know, any other MacGuffin that slots into that spot, what does Dracula really want in your campaign? That MacGuffin becomes the Philby plot mechanisms. Right.
0: And, and you have to really pitch your players on why they don't want Dracula to eat Putin. Well, because
1: anything can get worse, as Putin literally has demonstrated over the course of his career. Yep. <laughs> and wouldn't you not want a smart, intelligent, forward-thinking Putin? I mean, I would. who's immortal? This seems terrible. So anyway, then specific cases and characters. Dorgiev is sort of the black magician in, in Zolojny Quartet. Uh, You can make him a parallel researcher to Edom. He can have been on an Edom payroll and then been let go. He can be the inheritor of the Nazi or Soviet vampire program if that's in your campaign. Uh, Working him into Edom is easy. He can be part of the CIA vampire program, even uh, St. John Philby, father of Kim, he could have been an original Edom, an OG Edom, and he might have been working for one of Dracula's brides. There's a mysterious female figure in the scenario Treason and the Blood that could turn out to be one of Dracula's brides easily enough. In Dracula Dossier, there is a a mole hunt that takes place in the 1970s, and that has repercussions down to today. What if they were trying to steal whatever Kim Philby was up to and and turn it over to Dracula? And so, that is what the mole hunt was about. That would wire it in there. And one of the MacGuffins in uh, Zelazny Quartet could be the Blood of Lilith. And uh, I don't want to give anything away, but there's places that someone who knows that campaign will say, oh, the blood of Lilith would work charmingly there. And if Lilith is in your Dracula dossier campaign, this is a great way to tie her in, is to make her blood part of Dracula's and or Edom's and or some, some other sort of plan that's connected.
0: Uh, well, I trust that's a, a fulsome answer here in Ask Ken and Robin. And uh, having considered it fulsomely answered, we can move on to the final segment of this episode.
1: In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy.
0: The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors.
1: They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden.
0: Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Ugh. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated,
1: rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and
0: graphic design. Featuring top-secret, eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlath. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell
1: your retailer
0: it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green the Conspiracy. From
1: Arc Dream Publishing.
0: It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing to wave at the smiling painting of the uh, fire salamander, who's the uh, egregore of uh, a fire and, and just a swell guy, and head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist. This time, instead of the typical smoking jacket, he's donned frillier garb than usual because uh, this time around he's going to tell us about an astrologer and master of occult studies From the early Georgian era, and that person Ken was named Isaac Bickerstaff.
1: Exactly. And to tell the tale of Isaac Bickerstaff, we must begin with the birth of a different and perhaps more famous astrologer at the time, John Partridge, who was born in 1644 in Surrey as John Hewson. And he's a cobbler, he's trained to repair shoes. Uh, He doesn't much care for that work, so his neighbor is famous astrologer at the time, John Gadbury, and he studies astrology with John Gadbury, and then moves to London, changes his name to John Partridge, which is the name of a, at that point, dead astrologer, and irony will continue throughout this piece, (laughs) and begins publishing astrological pamphlets and then an almanac, the Merlinus Liberatus, and he begins publishing that in 1679, and As with almanacs of the time, uh, the prophecies that he prophesies are often wishes. And so it's like, you know, well, I'm sure that the stupid Tories will fail in Parliament, that kind of thing, because he's a Whig. And he's not such a radical Whig that he doesn't turncoat over the Rye House plot.
0: And explain Whigs
1: and the Rye House plot. The Whigs are the anti-royal party, by and large, and the Tories are the royal party. The Whigs are the urban bourgeoisie party. The Tories are the landed aristocracy party. And that's basically how it sets up. Rapidly as they develop, it turns out, Robin, that political parties don't always stand for a coherent ideology and are just about power maximization, just about interests, or something. Yeah, wild. But uh, in this case, a bunch of radical Whigs may or may not have been conspiring to kill Charles II at Rye House in 1683, and John Partridge turned state's evidence and therefore got an entirely pro forma physician-by-appointment appointment from Charles II, which he then put on all of his letterhead, even though he had no business doing it. But he's such a Whig that when the far more Tory King James II shows up, he has to go to Holland for a bit, where the Protestants are in charge. He supposedly studies medicine at Leiden University. There is no more proof of that than... It says on his gravestone, I studied medicine at Leiden University, so take Nobody that. he ar-
0: argues with gravestones.
1: Right. And he returns in 1688, having predicted the death of a king, and the death of the king in this case is the overthrow, but not the death, of James II, and William and Mary come in, and uh, in his almanac, he brags that he predicted his political death, not his real death. Read almanacs better, people. But this drives his sales up. They reach 25,000 copies apiece, which is a lot for an almanac. And the first thing he does with his new fame is traduce his old teacher, John Gadbury, and start fights in which he says, John Gadbury's almanacs are terrible. You should do my almanacs. They're much better.
0: Yes. So this is an era where politics is openly astrological instead of now where it's just covertly uh, full of occult nonsense. And also
1: astrology, because it so often deals in personalities, is a great place to shed gossip. So you can say, oh, a nobleman who's been carrying on with actors will be found dead in embarrassing circumstances in March, and then you don't have to predict the name of the nobleman, and everyone's like, I know he's talking about. And maybe you win the lottery, and the guy does in fact die, or someone like him.
0: Like a bold claim, but there's there's a bunch of these coming. Yeah, there's there's tons of these that
1: that happen, and he gets into mud fights with all these astrologers. He is definitely a guy who mixes it up, and people say uh, John Partridge doesn't know anything about astrology, and John Partridge says, "Well, you don't know anything about astrology," and he in fact even writes an astrological textbook saying we should take all the medieval cruft out of astrology and go back to Ptolemy, which I think is a fun. Sidelight on his Protestantism, because Protestantism was, of course, about getting rid of all the medieval cruft and going back to the original teachings of Jesus. He's a Protestant astrologer. It's, it's kind of cute. He begins to make enemies amongst the London wits, many of whom are Whigs as well, but they're, you know, they're sort of country club Whigs as opposed to street Whigs. And so Tom Brown, the friend of Afra Ben, and Addison says, Tom Brown of facetious memory, which is a great, Epigraph. Um, anyway, Tom Brown calls him a cobbler before becoming footman to the planets. So he's already got satirists writing pamphlets against him. He's part of the scrum, part of the intellectual scrum in, in London and in politics. So in 1707, for the new almanac for 1708, which was obviously published in 1707 so that people can get ready with their prophecies, he refers to the Church of England sarcastically as the infallible church. And apparently this gets up Isaac Bickerstaff's nose. And so Isaac Bickerstaff, who had at this point no presence in the astrological community, shows up with his own predictions in February of 1708. So he's publishing his almanac late. But the first prediction before going on to predict a bunch of disasters in France is the death of John Partridge. He says, I have consulted the star of his nativity by my own rules and find he will infallibly die upon the 29th of March next, about 11 at night, of a raging fever. And this is a layered bit, because 29th of March is the anniversary of the Black Monday eclipse of 1652, which all the astrologers got really head up about, and it turned out to not usher in a year of darkness and so, a lot of people use that as the excuse, sort of royal society types, use that as the excuse to say, well, astrology doesn't work. Stop listening to it. So, it's a it's a month for skeptics to mock astrology about that date. And then also, Partridge had predicted in his own almanac that April would bring in a huge amount of ague and fever. And so, therefore, Bickerstaff is predicting that he's going to die of the fever that he predicted himself. Partridge publishes a response and says, Bickerstaff's a nobody. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't even give his math in his pamphlet. This is a terrible pamphlet. And so then on uh, March 29th, Bickerstaff publishes in Black Borders a little broadsheet that is an elegy for Partridge, announcing his death in lovely uh, rhymed uh, couplets. Here, five feet deep, lies on his back, a cobbler, starmonger, and quack. Weep, all you customers that use his pills, his almanacs, or his shoes.
0: That's Isaac uh, Bickerstaff, he's a,
1: he's a pretty funny writer. He is, is a weird. pretty funny writer, and that is why the Bickerstaff Almanac sells huge. And that's why Partridge has to publish a response. And then, the next day, a new pamphlet comes out from Bickerstaff, the accomplishment of the first of Mr. Bickerstaff's predictions. And this is written as though it's by a gentleman from Revenue, who has simply turned it over to Bickerstaff to be published.
0: It's, it's like a retweet. Exactly. A, a re-pamphlet.
1: Mm-hmm. And the gentleman from Revenue says that he's a friend of a friend of of Partridge, and that he came to Partridge's house, and Partridge lay dying on the bed, and that uh, the prediction was off by four hours, so Bickerstaff doesn't get to claim that, but Partridge, on his deathbed, admits to being a fraud and says he only did it to support his poor wife, which is another joke because his Partridge's real wife was very rich, and one of the jokes was that Partridge lived off of his wife, so it's a... It, it's it's a double slam while also announcing his death. And hilarity ensues. People knock on Partridge's door to offer condolences to the widow, sell coffins, etc. He has to keep coming to the door and saying, I'm not dead. Stop doing that. People it, refer to it. It's in- quite a
0: version of swatting to have people show up with coffins at your door. <laughs> exactly. And so he writes a letter to the
1: postmaster general in Ireland and says, make sure to forward my mail from Ireland. I know that people are saying I'm dead, but I'm not dead. I'm alive. But the postmaster general of Ireland apparently is a friend of Bickerstaff because he leaks the letter to the paper, which makes Partridge look even stupider.
0: Oh, this Bickerstaff is seeming well-connected. He really is, especially in Ireland. Who
1: could it be? Partridge then publishes a rebuttal saying, I am so alive, and this is in the pages of the 1709 Almanac, and then Bickerstaff publishes in 1709 a vindication of Isaac Bickerstaff, explaining that nobody with life or soul could write the 1709 Merlus Liberatus. It's obviously churned out by a hack. Also, that only dead people can know the future, because they're talking to ghosts and Satan. And also, publishing an almanac is no guarantee you're still alive, because lots of people use the name of dead people on their almanac. Isn't that right, John Partridge? So, it's just this complete takedown. It does huge business. And then finally, the last bit of the vindication is that Bickerstaff says that Partridge's wife had said that he was dead. Death is defined by all philosophers as separation of the soul and body. Now it is certain that the poor woman who has best reason to know this would be his wife has gone about for some time to every alley in the neighborhood and swore to the gossips that her husband has neither life nor soul in him. (laughs) So just complete, utter takedown. And apparently as a response to this partridge, then he's losing money so he goes to the royal company of stationers who have the exclusive right to print and sell almanacs that are approved by the church. And he says, I want to raise on my almanac. And they said, go away, partridge, your yesterday's news. Also, aren't you dead? And you look a little peakish. Yeah. Like you should lie down and be dead like you are. And so he then takes his almanac and sells it to another guy who's not stationer approved. And then when that guy publishes it, The stationers basically sue him. He's he's resigned from the stationers, but they sue him anyway because he's illegally publishing an almanac and that goes through court. So he's not allowed to publish an almanac for a few years. And so a guy named Abel Boyer says, thus, the prophecy of Isaac Bickerstaff is at last accomplished for although Mr. Partridge may still be alive as to his animal functions, he is at present dead as an astrologer and almanac writer. And the happy ending, I guess, is that Merlinus Liberatus does come out in 1714, but then Partridge dies the next year. Uh, He dies with 2,000 pounds in his estate, so he's not poor, and he's buried basically next to John Dee, so that's something. But he is dead, and that is the final triumph of Isaac Bickerstaff, who turns out, Robin, and this will surprise nobody, perhaps, uh, to be Jonathan Swift. And uh, Jonathan Swift, who at the time was still a Whig but becoming less so because the the Whigs were not giving tax relief to Irish clerics, which is what he was, and he uh, saw a locksmith sign that said Bickerstaff. He said, that's a good name, and used it as the name for this incredibly sophisticated and cool troll. Also, Jonathan Swift was not an astrologer. He was a skeptic of that. In addition to lots of other things, not the church of Ireland. He believed in that.
0: Yes. Much of the point of this was to attack astrology in the guise of an astrologer and and taking down Partridge, who frankly, I think everyone at the
1: time said, yeah, he deserves it. He's asked for it. And then Bickerstaff lives uh, because Richard Steele, the satirist, Says Bickerstaff, Isaac Bickerstaff is the editor of my magazine, The Tattler. And if you have problems, go to Isaac Bickerstaff. He's the guy that wrote it. And that skates a little close to the wind. So it has to shut down in 1711 and becomes the spectator, which eventually becomes the spectator that we all know and love today. Right.
0: And Steele keeps Bickerstaff alive, mm -hmm. along with another writer named Joseph Addison. And sometimes Swift pitches in and he writes a humor column under Bickerstaff's name So he fleshes out the character of Bickerstaff. So the the first one references the Partridge Affair. It refers to Bickerstaff as an expert in astronomy and occult studies. And then it describes a ridiculous family tree that he belongs to, where people have different surnames, but they all end in staff. So it's like Lindenstaff and Goldenstaff and and so forth. And uh, there are enough of these humor columns that they collected them in book form. And you can actually find the text of the book on uh, on Gutenberg. Yeah. Now, this makes us wonder, you know, maybe, you know, despite Swift's professed skepticism, is there something going on? Because in 1901, the Tatler was revived in the quite very non-Wig form as a, a magazine that celebrated the doings of the British royal family and of the, the upper, upper, upper crust. And the Tatler still exists. You can buy it in newsstands. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know if anyone's ever bothered to pick one up. Right. But it turns out that Isaac Bickerstaff is still writing for the Tatler.
1: Yeah, you get a good gig, you don't want to mess it up as a writer.
0: His latest article is from December 8th of this year, and it's about uh, Princess Anne's appearance at a seafarer's charity. So I have to disappoint everyone, and that as he's you know reached the age of 350, it does seem like Bickerstaff is no longer an anti-royalist and is, is in fact, a royal suck-up, but... Bickerstaff is still apparently alive and well at least more well than Partridge.
1: I mean if it makes you feel better, Jonathan Swift also became a Tory, so you know, it may be like father like son that there kind of situation. Up.
0: Well, I I guess he made the switch before he declared himself dead. Yeah. He's not to be confu- Isaac Bickerstaff is not to be confused with the later Anglo-Irish playwright Isaac Bickerstaff with an e on the end. He is just a little bit later. He was born in 1733 and he lived to 1808. But he himself was also the subject of multiple death hoaxes, (laughs) uh, including uh, one instance where he was said to have uh, flung himself into the sea. And the reason there is that he was fleeing Britain after uh, rumors of his homosexuality and an affair with David Garrick uh, sent him to the continent. But uh, he uh, was said to have died multiple times uh, before actually dying. So there's something about uh, the name Isaac Bickerstaff that uh, lends you a Ability to die and recover from it, or perhaps in the case of Jonathan Swift, who's now, you know, writing about uh, Princess Anne, uh, immortality.
1: Yeah. And Jonathan Swift's, you know, most famous work, *Gulliver's Travels, was also thought by idiots to be a real book and not a fiction. And so, you know, perhaps Isaac Bickerstaff is still filing copy from the floating island of Laputa, where he can hover over people uh, with super science and look down on them and make fun and be a troll.
0: So uh, this is certainly a a fun window into an era of history that uh, has not been gamified enough, but uh, in the live episode, I sort of referred to this era as a fun sort of building block for giving these various pamphlets and attacks and satire sort of a cult power. And here's A prime example of one that is about a cult power, if perhaps not actually exercising it.
1: Yeah, and that certainly wrecks Partridge's life a little bit, so it it accomplished something. And the whole notion of dueling astrological almanacs, arguing about each other, giving fake prophecies to try and move politics around, you could certainly turn that into grist for any number of Unknown Armies games or, or something similar. Uh, where grotty people are attempting to shift the motions of the stars by sheer venom and cussedness. So it's good fun, and it's, you know, Jonathan Swift is, is great. He's a great dude.
0: Well, we have uh, not venom, but the cussedness to return week after week, which we're going to do a week from now, but it's time once more to close up this here podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games, Palgrain Press, Askfagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as
1: always, is by James Semple. Audio editing
0: by Rob Borges.
1: Support our Patreon at patreoncom backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Protect this podcast from vicious satires by joining esteemed backers exactly like Luke Steyer, Andrea Coletta, Darren Hennessy, Will Ferguson, and Fifi Piat, and Derek McMullen wear this show or drink it from a mug with ken and robin merch at tpublic.com user slash ken robin celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest
1: design you are a special island on x
0: he's at kenneth height and on mastodon
1: he's robin d laws at dice.camp
0: see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff